The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Lord, we, we do come now into your presence. We come now expectant that this is your word written by your spirit and that now the Holy Spirit will come and help us to see you, help us to see your purposes and your plans, help us to see your son Jesus and love him more. So Father, come now through your word, by your spirit, make much of Jesus in our minds, in our hearts. Lord, make less of ourselves in our minds and in our hearts. Meet with your people now, we pray, and do what you need to do among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a a time and a place where we're told kind of over and over again that we are the point, that that we're the point. A time where we are called to post endlessly about what we're doing, right? Take these things, right? This new phenomenon called selfies, right? That's That's a new phenomenon, an interesting perspective. But more seriously, those are kind of the the outputs, the strange effects. But more seriously, a time where the morality of the day is to do whatever makes you most happy in the moment and tell everybody else about it so that they would see you the way you want to be seen. That's the morality of the day. A time where we're called to, to curate our lives for everyone else to see to tell us how awesome we are. Right, that, that's kind of the day and age that we live in. A time where we are told a comfortable, affluent life with a big following is the path to significance and a path to happiness. But uh, the promise isn't delivering. And I've brought this up a few times. But in the last 10 years or so, in every national survey done, rates of loneliness, rates of Depression, rates of anxiety are ever increasing across every demographic, across all uh, economic lines, across all ethnic lines, across all age lines. No one is safe. No one is excluded from these trends. So what that means, at least in in this day and age we live in, is that self-focused self-expressive life of attention and fame and momentary comfort doesn't appear to be keeping its promises. Doesn't appear like it's delivering on what it says it will give to the human soul. It seems as if something inside humans was not actually made to find happiness and significance and how awesome everyone thinks we are and the security it brings. Although we all know it feels good in the moment, right? Right? Great sermon, Pastor. <laughs> Thanks. Right? But it does something in us for a moment. We've got we to think about what, what is that, and yet it's, it's empty and it doesn't last. And that's where many people find themselves. Eventually, even if they're successful, even if they have all the money, they have all the things they ever could have thought would make them happy, there's an emptiness. Well, if anyone had accomplishments worth posting about on his feed, especially in Christian circles, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Right? He was prestigious. He was popular. 
He was famous. That meant he had lots of money and he had lots of power and he had lots of influence, right? He probably would have been an influencer in his day among the Jewish leadership. And yet Jesus taught him where real joy was found. Here's what Philippians 3 verses 7 to 8 say. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So for Paul, you'd ask him, fame? What about the fame? Paul would say, nothing compared to knowing Jesus. But what about the power? <laughs> you had to do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted it. Nothing compared to knowing Jesus. What about the riches? Right? Money doesn't buy happiness. Or I mean, kind of, right, Paul? You'd say, nothing. Nothing compared to knowing Jesus. What about the, the comfort? Now you're on the run all the time, getting chased out of cities you used to chase. You'd say, nothing. None of that's anything compared to knowing Jesus. And does this mean you can't have money or fame or comfort? Of course not. It doesn't mean that. Those things aren't inherently bad. It just means when we begin to seek our ultimate happiness in those places and train ourselves to to aim our lives at those things, we will be deeply disappointed. It won't deliver on all of its promises. And the reason is that we're not the end. Right? We're not the end. We're not the point. God is the end. We were made. We keep seeing this in Genesis over and over again. We were made in his image to take him in. Because he's the point. Right? What does it mean that God makes billions of little image bears, billions of little mirrors to point to him and spreads them all around the earth? Do you think the point is, is one of those little image bearers? Or is the point him? All of it reflected all over the earth. And the obsession with self will lead to an end, ourselves, that can never satisfy the deep longings of our souls. Right? My soul, Dave's soul, can't be satisfied with Dave. Even bigger, better, stronger, more handsome, richer, all those Daves, right? None of those Daves will satisfy my soul. Only God will satisfy my soul. So today we'll see these themes repeated, and we'll see a God... This is the good news. The God who pursues his people so that they might make him the main point and find true happiness and true significance in him. That's what we're going to see in this text today. So point number one, we're going to start here and look at the real line of God's promise. And so at the beginning of chapter 10, really all of chapter 10, and then at the end of chapter 11, we have a long genealogy. So I'm just trusting, right? We're having you read before we come in here. That you, you got after those genealogies this week. You have the names memorized. So I'm not going to read all those to you right now. I just want to talk about, again, why they're there. Right? It's, the, it's the genealogy of the sons of Noah. So Noah died at the end of chapter 9. As all people do, right? Remember, over Genesis hangs this reality of sin and the shadow of death. And we see the genealogy of Ham and Shem and Japheth. So why are those genealogies significant? 
Why does the author keep putting them in there, right? Why all the names, right? Doesn't he want you to keep reading your Bibles and not give up? So here's why they're there. This is real history. This is real history. God is pursuing his redemptive purposes in real history. He keeps his promises in real history, right? Your family tree, right, might be boring to everyone else who reads it, right? Like, let's sit down and read 42 of my generations. But not to you. That's your story. <laughs> that's where you came from. That's, that's where everything started. And, and this, this is actually our family history, This is where God is keeping his promises to us. He wants us to see that he's working in real history. This is our family history. Kids, I want you to know God is not some make-believe, far-off God that just made everything and walked away. Indeed, our God is always working in real history. He always sees you. He sees you right now in church listening to this pastor talk. That's how real our God is. That's how present he is with us in history. God promised back in Genesis 3.15 that he would send an offspring to crush the head of the serpent and bring his people back to him. Right? That, and that's the promise that drives this whole book and drives the rest of the Bible. Remember, this is all about God's people in God's place to what? Enjoy God's presence. Say it with me. I'm going to say it until you can say it with me. God's people... In God's place to enjoy God's presence. So the author keeps recording these genealogies because he's helping us keep track of God's promise. He's saying, remember, this is real history. God's moving somewhere. So in chapter 10, we see how the world was populated as people go to various places and spread out. And we see God working in real history. And I just want to make two quick observations about these particular genealogies in chapter 10 and chapter 11. First, what's significant about these genealogies in this section is that they get us from Noah to Abram. They get us from Noah to Abram. This is the line of promise that will get us from the covenant with Noah to never flood the earth to the covenant with Abraham that the blessing of all nations will come from his Offspring, significant covenants, our family story. God is working that his people might enjoy his presence. This covenant with Noah and this covenant of Abraham in chapters 10 to 11 bridge us and get us there. And then what I want you to notice to just emphasize that point is how the genealogy in chapter 10 is general. Right? Ham and Shem and Japheth and their families. In fact, we see many of Israel's future enemies in the line of Ham. We see them represented in Egypt and Canaan and Assyria. There's a kind of foreshadowing here to remember that that's the line of curse and God's enemies are still real and in the picture even as the story marches on. But this is a general genealogy in chapter 10. And what you'll find in Genesis is that the author is going to give time and space and attention to what he thinks is most important. So that as we get to the end of chapter 11, in that genealogy, it zeroes in again on one particular person. Shem. Right? Shem is the one most greatly blessed at the end of chapter 9. And now he's the one zeroed in on again as the line of promise at the end of chapter 11. And it's from him that Abraham will come. 
So the author is giving prominence to the line of promise. And he wants you, the author wants you to think, yes, this was promised back in chapter 3, verse 15. i got to keep track of this. God's working. He's moving. He's getting us there. So as the people come and go, and the shadow of death hangs over the earth, the author shows God is still working to keep his promise of an offspring The serpent will still be crushed. God's enemies still exist, but his promise is still coming. And ultimately, God will make a way for his people to enjoy his presence again. Point number two, the rebellious life of man's pride. And here we get the very popular story of the Tower of Babel. So we could read chapter 10, and we could see humans spreading out. And going to different places. And we could think, well good. They're listening. Remember God told them, be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth with the image and presence of God. Look at they're listening. They're spreading out. But I think what's going on in chapter 11 is the author is actually going back before chapter 10 to to highlight, here's how that happened. Here's how they got dispersed. I'm going to tell you the the kind of ugly backstory now, so you can see the human heart. In chapter 11, he's going back and telling us how the people spread out and landed in different places with different languages, and it wasn't obedience. That's the author's point. So look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We're meant to see this. As disobedience. Direct result of the sinful human heart that does what it wants to do and not what God wants it to do. So God says to them, multiply. Fill the earth with my image. Make much of my name. (laughs) Give me glory. And they say, but what if we stayed here? What if we made a name for ourselves so big that no one would ever make us move? Right? What, what, what if we just stayed here? Notice, they want to be the point. They want to be the point. They're, they're driven by pride and comfort. I would even say they're, they're driven by a, a prideful preservation. <laughs> like many of us are. A prideful self-preservation. Right? We, we all do this. Right, I, I want to be safe and comfortable. Right? I, know, I know God says eternity's coming. I know I have an eternal hope. I know this life isn't technically about me, but I kind of want it to be now, right? The resurrection is real, yes, but how is it real for me today? It feels risky to go do that. It feels risky to walk in obedience. It feels risky to stop sinning in that way. It feels risky to go talk to my neighbor. It feels risky to talk to my coworker about Jesus. I want to stay in here, right? Stay they want to be the point. They, they want this preservation. And so their pride and their need for comfort makes them devote their whole lives to disobedience. Kids, let me ask you something. Do you ever do things 
to get attention for yourself. No, one good person in this place. They, <laughs> do you ever, kids, do something? Do you ever do something that your parents don't really want you to do, but you do it because it's just easier? Do your parents ever say, hey, did you do that? No, why? Right? Because it was easier not to. Right? That's the answer for so many of us. Right? We all do this. This isn't new. Right? This is just the garden all over again. Right? This is just Cain all over again. This is us. We think we can figure it out a little bit better than God. And even though it's crazy when we say it out loud, it seems safer and better to do things our way where we feel safe than to do things God's way where he says we're safe. We want to do what we want. We want to be comfortable. And so we devote our lives to building our little kingdoms of prideful preservation. But they're not as big as we think they are. Look at verse 5. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the children of man had built. Notice two things. First notice the phrase, children of man. This could also be translated just as well, the sons of Adam. The sons of Adam. And I think that's what we're meant to read. I wish it was translated that way, right? Here are people doing what people do. Here are Adam's children doing what Adam did. Here are humans infected by sin. Again, trying to be God instead of worshiping God. Again, deciding what is best instead of trusting God's word for what he says is best. Here are some little sons of Adam. Right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Right? We don't know if it was an apple, but you get the metaphor. Second, so here's humans doing what humans do. Second, Notice how futile and silly our little kingdoms are. Notice how futile and silly they are. These, these things that we, we try to do to protect ourselves and our pride. They say, we will build this into the heavens. We'll have a great name. Who could move us? And then it says, God had to come down a ways to see their little tower. Right? It, it's like they think they're building this massive city... And it's like when a parent walks into the room, right, and a a two-year-old has built a little thing out of blocks. Oh, that's cute. Look at you. You did a little building thing. That's so cute, right? That's what God is doing here, right? This is not impressive to him. We'll build into the heavens. God's like, well, you didn't quite get there. I got to come down to see it. What's the point? The point is it's tiny compared to God. This thing that they're putting their hope in and their trust in, it's so small compared to God. If we could see our prideful efforts of preservation in light of eternity, they would look so silly and so small. So what does God do? Look at verses 6 to 9. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
It's a lot harder to build a massive tower if you can't communicate with anyone else that's building it with you. And this was not hard for the Lord. The Lord cares about the good of people, and he cares about the glory of his name. And so he cannot let a united effort of disobedience flowing from hearts of pride and self-preservation go on. He can't allow it for their good and for his glory. This was only the beginning of what they would do, right? He says, they're just going to keep going. That's what pride does. When pride is successful, it wants more, right? It's never satisfied. This would not have been good for them. They would have lived lives of prideful self-preservation and never missed God or never seen God at all. They would have kept proposing and perpetuating more and more of the same over and over again. Here's something that just landed on me this week as I was studying this. Right? Sometimes we think of scattered places and scattered peoples and scattered languages as a barrier to the gospel. Like, well, how are we ever going to do it? But here what we see is that God knew, in his infinite wisdom, God knew that a bigger barrier would have been one people... One place and one language completely puffed up with pride and comfort and security so they could never even fathom a need for God. And our wisdom would say, all all the languages is too hard. And God would say, no, it would be a lot harder if I would have kept you all together in your pride. Instead, God scatters the sons and daughters of Adam to different places with different languages as divine restraint on a united disobedience that would flow from united pride. In other words, instead of one people gathered to make much of themselves and their pride, God scatters them. And don't we see the pride of scattered peoples even today restrain one another from what could be ultimate wickedness? And one other thing, notice this place is called Babel. If you do the word search in the Old Testament, this is a foreshadowing, I think, of the great Babylon. That will raise itself up in pride against God in the Old Testament. The Babylon which becomes a symbol in the New Testament in the book of Revelation for the enemy of God. That raises itself up in pride against his purposes and against his praise. And don't we see that today? Don't we just see the Tower of Babel repeated over and over again today? Groups of people banding together on all sorts of issues and all sorts of causes and all sorts of ideas to unite in prideful outrage and agendas, all claiming we have the true pathway to comfort, we have the true pathway to flourishing, we have the true pathway to joy, yet all completely on all sides devoid of God in the picture. That's just like where we live today, isn't it? Isn't that what you see on the various news outlets? Isn't that what you see on the various social media feeds? That's everywhere. And we all have these impulses inside of us. Pride and preservation. Giving too much of our hearts and our lives to make our names great and feel comfortable and secure. So how are these things related? Why, Why make a name great so that you can stay? Think about this. Why does my great name mean I can stay? Well, here's what I think. I think true humility is obedience to the God of the universe, knowing the whole world is about him, and a trust that he will keep his promises into eternity. That's what humility is. Therefore, pride is disobedience to God, thinking the world is about us, 
And therefore, that comes from not trusting his promises into eternity so that right now, in this day and age, in the present moment, we just have to grasp, right? We have to grasp for significance, for security. And it doesn't matter if it's connected to God at all. Like, it just, it all feels so finite and so short and so broken. It's like, I just, I need it now. I need security now. I need significance now because I can't quite trust it's all coming. Because this life, just feels too short and it's hard to bring all his promises to bear day to day. But by God's grace, the Spirit helps us see that any success we'd have in acquiring prideful power or popularity or prestige or comfort is so small compared to the bigness and glory of God. And by God's grace, the Spirit helps us see how fragile happiness in those things is compared to joy in Jesus. By God's grace, the Spirit lovingly and mercifully reveals to us where we are stuck in those places today and gently causes us to repent. Like, when is the last time you, you, you felt that? You know, like, oh, it's all about, that was all about me. That wasn't about him. That, that was all about me. That wasn't about him. I just want to be safe, wanted people to notice me. And that's the Holy Spirit, right? Wooing you out of yourself. Wooing you out of these places that are empty and bringing you into the fullness of joy. Point number three. Redemptive love through God's promises. So we need to remember, which we always know, but it's good to remember, that God's purposes are not thwarted by sinful humans. So like we've seen and we'll keep seeing God keeps working his plan of redemption. God keeps pursuing his people in love. God keeps working to keep his promises. So we have, at the end of chapter 11, a people scattered in different places with different languages because of their prideful preservation. But the promise of an offspring isn't gone. It hasn't gone away. The purpose to fill the earth with God's glory isn't gone. It hasn't gone away. When people won't listen to him and do what he says, God just makes them leave and do what he says anyways. Fill the earth with his glory. God is working in real time so that his people can dwell in his place and enjoy his presence. And even though, at first, the dispersing of people happens because of global, universal pride, eventually it will serve to show the beauty of global praise. That God is worthy of the praise from every tribe and people and tongue and language and nation. God created the nations by dispersing them, created Afghanistan, created Russia, created Ukraine, Lebanon, Liberia. He brought people even here to Lakeville. And God will redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God will redeem a people from their lives of unhappy pride, searching for significance, searching for importance, running after these things that promise joy. He'll redeem them from that, the pride in making themselves the point, and he will draw them into happy praise of making him the point. That's what he's always doing. So remember what happened at Babel, right? God confused their languages because they wanted to stay to make much of their name. So how is God going to go get them? <laughs> Will he go get them? Well, listen to Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to disperse them and I'm going to go get them. <laughs> I'm going to go after them to all the nations. Notice here whose name is important in Matthew 28, 19. The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice what happens when we know it's all about his name. Can we just sit around and stay in our comfort? No. We have to go and make disciples. We have to go and tell our neighbors and the nations that the promised offspring has come. Right? What a joy to be on this side of the cross. Right? He's come. <laughs> He's here. Right? He crushed the head of the serpent. Your sins can be forgiven. You're not the end. And that's good news. He's the end and he redeemed you to see it. Your pride, your self-preservation, your comfort can be forgiven and be covered by the blood of Jesus. Come to him. Right? This is a life of happiness and significance. Being lost in propagating and perpetuating the praise of the glory of Jesus. Doing what we're made to do as image bearers of God and making much of him and spreading his glory. And God empowers us to do this in redemption. Right? You remember Acts 2. Acts 2 is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> That's what's going on. When you read Acts 2, you should think of this in chapter 11 and go, Oh, I see what God's doing. In Acts 2, people from all different places and all different languages are gathered. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And they begin to speak by the power of the Spirit. In other words, God is undoing, at least for a moment, the confusion of their languages. Right? And at the Tower of Babel, it was all about them. Right? Let's make much of ourselves. What's happening when he's undoing the confusion of their languages in Acts 2? What are they saying? Verse 11, Acts 2. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The Holy Spirit comes. He overcomes the language barrier, barrier that people might hear the greatness of the name of Jesus. That people might be able to hear their sinners in need of a savior. That they might be able to repent from their sins and be saved. And as they repent and are saved, they're filled with the spirit that they might go and make much of Jesus. That's what we see in Acts. The gospel through the power of the spirit, through the redeemed and repentant image bearers, will go forth to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. And where? Even to where? The ends of the earth. I'm going to get them. They never would have come to me if they were in one name, in one place, making much of themselves. So I had to disperse them. But I'm going to get them. I will redeem them. And you know what I'm going to redeem them through? Other sinners, by my grace, by my spirit, speaking my name, bringing them back in. Right? This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel that's happening. That people might go and tell others, give up the life of pride. Give up the light of self-preservation. Come into the life devoted to praising the self-giving love of the promised offspring, Jesus Christ. Come into the life of praising the one who took our sins and rose again to conquer death. And if we're on the right track, we should ask, where is all this headed? Where's all this going? Where does the work of Jesus, the preaching of the gospel, the power of the Spirit, where does it all end up? Well, it ends up with God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence. That's where it all ends up. And Jesus is seen as worthy of global praise and as a worthy redeemer for every people in every place and in every language. Listen to Revelation 5, verses 8 
to 12. And when he had taken the scroll, that's Jesus, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. The scroll represents all of history. Worthy are you to determine all of history, to open it all up, to make it all about you, to bring it all to pass. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Notice all the earth centered where? Around Jesus. This is the happy life. This is the fulfilled life. This is the significant life to give all of ourselves to having our eyes on the throne of Jesus. This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel, that he will gather a people again in one place after he scattered them to make much of his name, not much of their own name. This is where history is headed. The people were scattered because of their pride, but God kept working to gather them back for his praise. This is what the Spirit is calling us to now. So let me make three final comments. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus this way, you're just like, man, I, I just I feel the emptiness. I feel myself grasping for significance. I, I feel myself knowing I'm sinning but trying to numb it or cover it up with shame or running after these other things. If that's you today and you're like, how do, how do I get out of this? You just confess your sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You just, it's called repentance. It's not a dirty word. It's not a scary word. Repentance is a beautiful word where we just say, I'm, I'm, turning, I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to Jesus. And that's where I'm going to find true joy and true hope and true significance in everything I've ever wanted, everything my heart was made for in him by his perfect life that I couldn't live, by his death that I deserve to die. And you can just come on into the family even today. He's here in real time and today would welcome you home. Second, if you're here today trusting Jesus, but you just see this sin all over your life, just this prideful preservation, this hanging on to this world, this making much of yourself that people might think you're great, that, that nothing would feel up for grabs here because you've got it all under control. That's you. Repent. Ask God to reveal and refine your pride. Ask God to reveal your pursuit of comfort as your God. Say you're sorry and ask for forgiveness to help remind yourself that true joy and security and hope is found in a life given to making much of Jesus and it's all headed towards that throne. And three, don't you want to be a people that join God in his gathering? And if his people have scattered, don't you want to be a people that join God in his gathering? The people have been scattered, and some of them are in your neighborhoods. If I get one thing done in my next 30 years here, I, I just want to convince you that you're in your neighborhoods for a reason. 
that the people have been scattered and they're scattered to your neighborhoods and, and God placed you in your neighborhood for a reason. You're the gospel witness. <laughs> you're, the, you're the representative of the, the kingdom. Love them in word and deed with the gospel. We're here as a local church for these neighborhoods. And some of these people have been scattered to the nations. Let's pray for God to raise up laborers to bring about his purposes, to gather his people all the way in the nations. And his promise in our neighborhoods and in the nations is that he has all authority and he will be with us always through the power of his spirit. So as we go, we're not going on our own. Right? We're not going in our own strength. We're not going to make much of ourselves. We're not going because we have to. We're going because someone came to us. <laughs> someone shared the gospel with us. And we're going knowing God promises he'll always be with me. God promises he has all authority. and He's going to be with me to the end of the age. So I don't have to worry, how am I going to answer that weird question? What if they don't like that I'm a Christian? What if that makes me unpopular in my neighborhood? What if that makes me feel less secure where I live? He's going to be with you. And he's got all authority and all power. So we need to go, leaving pride and comfort behind to our neighborhoods and to the nations until the day we're gathered around the throne with hopefully some people from our neighborhoods (laughs) declaring Jesus is worthy. He is the lamb who was slain to gather people from every tribe and tongue and people and language and nation. So let me pray. So Lord, we do pray now that you would come and reveal to us where we're living in the same place that these people in the Tower of Babel story we're living, trying to preserve our comfort, preserve our security, do it our own way, believing that we're safer in our own plans than we are when we follow your plans for us. Oh God, forgive us. Lord, we all do this. We do it in big ways. We do it in small ways. Trust ourselves more than you. Rely on ourselves more than you. Trust our planning more than your purposes. Quick to Google before we go to God. Quick to plan before we pray. God, all of those are little expressions of just a heart that trusts itself and wants to carve out our own little kingdoms here on earth. But oh God, how small they are compared to your bigness, and your glory, and your mercy. So Lord, draw us back now, Lord. Some of us for the first time, draw us to yourself, Lord, and draw some of us back. Bring back the wanderers. Strengthen those who feel deep joy and strength in the faith right now, Lord. And come by your spirit and work in every heart, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.